This evening, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 as we're continuing our study through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And if you remember from our last study, Paul spoke of the law being a tutor. And it shows that we're sinners separated from God. That was all the law could do. It couldn't save us. It could only show us where we stood before God. And it was the law then that brought us to Jesus. He's the one that saves. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace, and we've seen that as we've gone through the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatians. In fact, in chapter 3, verses 26 through 29 of Galatians, Paul said, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, here's a promise of God. And yet, how many people believe what God has said? You know, God has told us in his word that man cannot save himself. But his promise is that he loves us, God loves us so much that he became flesh, he dwelt among us to go to the cross of Calvary to pay in full the penalty for our sins. And this is the big question. Do you believe it? I'm sure most of you here, if not all of you do. But like I said, it seems like the more bizarre things are, the more bizarre things people say, the more they tend to believe them. Case in point, and this is from a few years back, but listen to what this person wrote. And this is from an email I received. Maybe you've received it. I still get some emails like this. But this is what it said to me. This took two pages of the Tuesday USA Today. It is for real. Please read. It was on the news. To all my friends, I do not usually forward messages. But this is from my good friend, Perilous Sanborn, and she really is an attorney. If she says that this will work, it will work. After all, what have you you got to lose? Sorry, everybody. Just had to take the chance. I'm an attorney, and I know the law. The thing is for real. Rest assured, AOL and Intel will follow through with their promises for fear of facing a multi-million dollar class action suit similar to the one filed by PepsiCo against General Electric not too long ago. Dear friends, please do not take this for a junk letter. Bill Gates sharing his fortune. If you ignore this, you will repent later. Interesting choice of words. Microsoft and AOL are now the largest internet companies and in an effort to make sure that Internet Explorer remains the most widely used program, Microsoft and AOL are running an email beta test. When you forward this email to friends, Microsoft can and will track it if you are a Microsoft Windows user for a two-week period of time. For every person that you forward this email to, Microsoft will pay you $245. For every person that you sent it to that forwards it on, Microsoft will pay you $243. And for every third person that receives it, you will be paid $241. Within two weeks, Microsoft will contact you for your address and then send you a check. I thought this was a scam myself, but two weeks after receiving this email and forwarding it on, Microsoft contacted me for my addresses, and within days, I received a check for $24,800. You need to respond before the beta testing is over. If anyone can afford this, Bill Gates is the man. It's all marketing expense to him. Please forward this to as many people as possible. You're bound to get at least $10,000. We're not going to help them out with their email beta test without getting a little something for our time. My brother's girlfriend got in on this a few months ago. When I went to visit him for the Baylor UT game, she showed me her check. It was for the sum of $4,324.44 and was stamped paid in full. Again, an interesting choice of words. Like I said before, I know the law and this is for real. Intel and AOL are now discussing a merger which would make them the largest internet company and in an effort make sure that AOL remains the most widely used program, Intel and AOL are running an email beta test. Now, Maybe you got taken in by this, and maybe you get taken into these things because they do sound so legit. But here's the thing. When it comes to Jesus Christ and his free gift of eternal life that's only found in him, how many people just dismiss dismiss it? Well, that's foolishness. That's crazy. 
the email was not crazy? Really? You know, it's interesting that they feel that way about the Lord. And I like what they said in the email, what have you got to lose? Here's the reality. When you reject Jesus Christ, when you reject his free gift, you have everything to lose, your eternity. That's a huge thing. And people don't take it seriously. Well, people say, well, you know, how, could you, how do you know you could believe what the Bible says? Again, check it out. The Bible's been the most studied book ever. People have tried to dismantle it. They've tried to say that there's so many errors in it. And you probably talked with people. Let's say, oh, you know, it's just full of errors. I challenge you, ask them. Here it is, show me. Well, there's so many in there. Okay, show me where they are. Chances are they have no idea. They're just repeating something that they heard before. The wonderful thing about God's word is it's historically accurate. It's archaeologically accurate. It's scientifically accurate. It's medically accurate. And if that's not enough, God's given us prophecy. He tells us things that are going to happen before they happen. In fact, he named Cyrus some few hundred years before he was even born that he was going to come in and destroy the Babylonians. So can I trust God's word? Absolutely. And so can I trust his promise to me? Absolutely. Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You know, here's another thing. You talk with people, you you know, hey, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or why would you go to heaven if that's where you think you're going to go? And most will say, because I'm a good person. You know, I do my best to help people out. I've never killed anyone. I try to live a certain standard of life. And what they're trying to do is be accepted by keeping a law, you might say, one that a standard they've come up with or someone else has set. But again, the problem is the law cannot save. It only can show you how you're doing. And because no man except for Jesus has ever kept the law, all are condemned by it. It's as the song goes, I fought the law and the law won. I don't even remember who sang that song, but I just, you know, those things are in my mind. It's so sad how much is in there and comes out once in a while. Now, as we move into Galatians chapter 4, Paul continues this thought of being a son of God, heirs according to the promise of God, the promise given to Abraham by faith. And he's going to show us where we are at as we lived under the law and now where we're at under grace. And so let's pick up Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let's see what the Lord has for us this evening as we study his word. Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Paul is speaking here of of the child becoming of age or becoming an adult. It, It was very definitive in the ancient world. You know, the Jewish ceremony of bar mitzvah, the Romans had a ceremony, toga viralis, and It was when a child had become a man. Until that time, he was under the direct and absolute care of his father. And so he didn't really differ from a slave because he had a master, just like a slave did. The difference here, though, being when the child came of age, he became an heir to all that his father had. Look at verse 3 of Galatians 4. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, Paul's talking here uh, about the physical life. You know, when we were young, we knew, let's say, our ABCs, the elements of the world, the elementary principles of the world. The Greek word for element speaks of uh, a line of things. It came to mean like the ABCs, basic principles. And think about it like this. You know, to make up words, to make up a sentence, you have to know your ABCs. You have to know the basics, but you also have to get beyond the basics to form the words, to make up a sentence. And the problem that Paul was dealing with here in the region of Galatia, in these churches, was that after Paul brought to them the gospel of grace, the one that's only found in Jesus Christ, the Judaizers would come in and they try to add the law to grace, which he can't do. 
They got them to follow some of the Jewish traditions, but that only put them into bondage. It never kept them free. In Galatians 4.17, which we'll get to later tonight, Paul said, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. I like the way the Amplified puts this. These men, the Judaizing teachers, are zealously trying to dazzle you, paying court to you, making much of you. But their purpose is not honorable or worthy or for any good. What they want to do is to isolate you from us who oppose them so that they may win you over to their side and get you to court their favor. And that's what legalism does. It isolates people. It makes them self-righteous. It keeps them in bondage. I've seen this even in Manitowoc. You know, people are concerned. Length of hair, length of dresses, uh, women wearing dresses, all kinds of issues. You know, earrings for men. Things that divide. I don't get a pierced ear because I don't like pain. It's as simple as that. You know, I don't have long hair anymore because I'm lazy. When I get up in the morning, I don't want to have to spend a lot of time on my hair. Sorry, ladies. But when I was younger, man, my hair was down to my shoulders. And I had to sit there, man. My hair would just curl all over the place. I don't do that anymore because I don't want to spend the time fixing it. But is it wrong? No. Who cares? But that's what legalism does. Thou shall not, you know, have long hair. Thou shall not have this. Thou shall not have that. And what does it do? It isolates people. Those people that had those issues leave the church because they can't handle it. How sad. And here Paul's talking about these Judaizers coming in, these keepers of the law, or so-called keepers of the law, and they're trying to sway people to their side. In regards to like Sabbaths and feast days and so on. All the religious activity. And think about it. All the religions of the world have a works-based relationship with the gods they worship. All of them. You have to do this. You can't do that. It's only Christianity that doesn't. Because it's God who's come down and paid in full the penalty for our sins. It's a free gift. It's a grace gift. It's not something I deserve or something that God has to give to me. He freely gives it to me. And people today, even today in the 21st century, try to find acceptance with God by their own efforts, and it doesn't work. And we need to be careful of these so-called elementary principles because they're dangerous. Paul spoke of this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He said, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, the ABCs, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. You see, even in Judaism, they had gone to the law to be saved. And now the pagan religions, they were centered upon a man-made systems, system of works. That's what the Judaism deteriorated into. It's not what God wanted. All kinds of rules and regulations to follow, to obey. And we don't, accept, we don't achieve divine acceptance by our own efforts. And we're to die to these elementary principles. We're not to follow them. Colossians 2.20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? That's an interesting question. Why are you going back to them? If Christ has freed you, if he has saved you, why are you going back to the basic principles, the elementary principles of the world? It makes no sense. Well, look at verse 4 of Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And here's God's timing. It was perfect. God sent forth his son to redeem sinful man who was under the curse of the law, born of the woman, his humanity, God becoming flesh, dwelling amongst us, fully God and fully man. 
born into a society that was in bondage to the law. And yet Jesus kept it perfectly. And only he could. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Absolutely, if he broke the law, he was a sinner. And he couldn't pay the penalty for our sins. He was sinless. Peter said, we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Can you imagine that? If you had money, you could buy your way into heaven. Wouldn't that be horrible? From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Absolutely. Jesus came to redeem us, buying us back, buying us out of slavery, you might say. We were slaves to sin. And he purchased us out of that bondage. And he set us free. What an amazing gift God has given to us. One writer put it like this. He said, Christ by nature, son of God, became a son of man, that we, by nature, sons of man, might become sons of God. Wonderful exchange. Absolutely. What God has done for us is amazing. It is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This is so wonderful because here's the problem. The Bible says sin has separated us from God. We can't have fellowship with the Father because our sins have separated us from him. But this is what, God is, what Christ has done for us. He's paid for our sins. And now he's opened the way into the Holy of Holies where we can have access to the Father. We can lay our requests at his feet. In fact, not only that, we could call him Daddy, Papa, or Abba. Now, for the Jews, in trying to keep the law, they can never have a relationship with God like that. But every single person who comes to Christ as their Lord and Savior can. Not because they're so good, but Christ has cleansed them of all their sins. And again, they could say, Daddy. Remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, 36? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. We can pray that. Abba, Father. Not because we're perfect in our own righteousness, but that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed into our lives by faith. In fact, Paul in Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Wow. You know, when you go back to the book of Genesis and you see that Adam's descendants were really sons of man. They had the sin nature. They weren't really sons of God anymore. That's why we needed to be born again. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but Christ has made, a lot, made us alive again. We need to be born again. We need to come to that saving faith. And if you look at these verses, verses actually 3 through 7 here in Galatians 4, we are in slavery to sin, in bondage to the law. And then what happens? Well, God steps in. He sets us free from slavery. We're no longer in bondage to the law. And it's all because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're declared now sons of God, adopted into the family of God through Christ Jesus. And the wonderful thing is it doesn't even end there. We're also not only sons of God, but heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. That's all because of what Jesus Christ has done. Let me share this story with you to kind of drive home this point. In 2002, Denise Banderman was a youth minister student at Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri. The day came for the class to sift their final exam. 
When Denise and her fellow students opened their papers, they were astonished to find every answer filled in. At the bottom of the page was a message that read, This is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A. You have just experienced grace. The course lecturer, Dr. Hufty, spoke to the students about the exam. He said, some things you learn from lectures, some things you learn from research, but some things you can only learn from experience. You've just experienced grace. 100 years from now, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your name will be written down in a book, and you will have had nothing to do with writing it there. That will be the ultimate grace experience. Absolutely. The reason we're going to heaven is because our Creator took the penalty for our sins. It doesn't matter how much good work you've done, how nice you are, all the work you've done. It was all a grace gift, grace of God. You don't deserve it. You never deserved it. But God freely gives it to you. You didn't put your name in the book of life. God put it there. And all I can say to that man is amen. You know, if I had to depend on what I have done to get into heaven, I might as well just forget it right now because it's not going to happen. And I'm really a great guy. Why are you laughing? The reality is, I'm a great guy compared to someone who is worse than me. I don't look for someone better than me to compare myself to. I look for someone who's worse than me. And I usually go to someone who's really, really bad. Someone who's murdered someone. I'm much better than him. Well, absolutely. But God doesn't say, you know, Joe, I guess he didn't murder anyone, so I guess you can go to heaven. No. My sins have separated me from God. And if you really think you're that good of a person, imagine if God took all the things you've done in your life, Not only all the things you've done in your life, but all the thoughts in your mind for your entire life. And we're going to show them up here on the screen. Would you like that? Oh, so you're not such a good person, huh? None of us are. That's the reality. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wonderful thing is that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Praise God for that. Look at verse 8 of Galatians 4. But then indeed when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beagerly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Now, here's the thing, and, and this, you know, I scratched my head at this one. Why would someone who's come to know God, someone who's been set free, place themselves under bondage once again? It makes no sense, and yet people do it. They're saved by grace through faith and enjoy that liberty, but somewhere down the road, they feel that they need to do this or do that to maintain their salvation, to be good enough for God to love them. You can't be. God loved you when you were a sinner, and he died for you when you were in that condition. It's a free gift. Paul said in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Don't go back to the elementary principles, the ABCs. Stout put it like this. He paraphrases this. If you were a slave and are now a son, if you did not know God but have now come to know him and to be known by him, how can you turn back again to the old slavery? How can you allow yourself to be enslaved by the very elemental spirits from whom Christ has rescued you? That's a great question. They're being swayed. They're being duped, you might say. They're keeping the weekly Sabbaths, the months or new moons, the seasons, the Jewish feasts. The sabbatical jubilee year. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating these feasts. If you want to celebrate Passover or any of the feasts, hey, praise God, go for it. Unless you're doing it for salvation. If you're doing it to be good enough. 
then it's wrong. In fact, Paul in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. You see, the feast days, all these things were a picture of what was to come. What was to come? Jesus. And now that Christ is here, why go back to a picture? Could you imagine? You're at a party and I see you there and go, hey, how you doing? And my wife is with me, but instead of introducing you to my wife who's standing right there, I go, you know, here's a picture of my wife. Would you think that's pretty weird? Of course you would. But she's standing right here. That's what Paul's saying here. Why are you going back to the picture? Christ is here. He's living. Don't go back to the type or the picture. That's foolishness. In Galatians 2.21, remember what he said. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. That's a good perspective of, the, of what's going on here. Why did Jesus come in the first place if we could work our way into heaven? It makes no sense. Well, verse 12 of Galatians 4 says, Brethren, I urge you to become as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me at all. And Please understand, Paul absolutely understood what legalism was all about. He was a Pharisee before he came to Christ. And he tried to keep the law to do the best he could. But it was a dead end. It never brought him closer to God. And I think one of the things that really got at Paul's heart, when he was there when Stephen was martyred, and Stephen had this intimate relationship with with God, and that's what Paul wanted all his life. And when he saw Stephen just talking with God and he couldn't, he was a man on a mission to destroy Christianity. He couldn't take it anymore. He wanted to get rid of it. And God got a hold of his heart and transformed him. He saw that it was a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. The Amplified Bible, I like the way it puts this verse. It says it like this. Brethren, I beg of you, become as I am, free from the bondage of Jewish ritualism and ordinances. For I also have become as you are, a Gentile. You did me no wrong in the days when I first came to you. Do not do it now. You know, don't go back to those ways. You're not even a Jew. You're a Gentile. Why are you going back to the Jewish customs? The Jews couldn't even keep them. And now you think you will? Well, look at verse 13. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now Paul clearly understood what legalism was all about. Absolutely. Like I said. But here Paul's talking about some kind of physical illness that he acquired. And I think it was that physical illness that he acquired that caused him to go to Galatia, to the higher lands. It's very possible while he was in Pamphylia, which was located in the lowland, which was marshy, and that's where he developed malaria. I think that was the issue that he was dealing with. In the higher elevations in Galatia, that's where he went to until he got a little better. But even with this painful, debilitating disease, Paul preached the gospel message to them. And, you know, and I read some of the stories in the scriptures, and I see these men and women and the things they went through, and it never deterred them from the work that God called them to do. What is moving you from completing the work that God has for you? What is moving you off a course or causing you to drop out? You see, that's an important question that we need to ask ourselves because so many things get in the way of what God wants to do in our lives and we end up putting God aside and we do other things 
But nothing was going to be move Paul from the course that God had set for his life. In fact, when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he, he tells them, and see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of, the th- none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Man, what a man of God. Everywhere he goes, you know, the Holy Spirit is saying, trouble awaits you in Jerusalem. What are you going to do, man? I'm not going there. I can just share with you quickly. When I first came up from uh, Chicago to Manitowoc to be the pastor at Calvary Chapel of Manitowoc, the first week I was there, there was like this 12, 13-page letter at the door of the church telling me all the reasons I should not be the pastor of the church. Now, if, when you, I'm a sensitive guy. I read it. It was disheartening. I just got up here. You haven't even given me a chance. The, the thing is, they didn't sign it. And here's the thing. Because over the last 21 years, Just like Pastor Dwight, there are many obstacles that you are going to encounter. But I knew what God called me to do. I knew he called me up to Wisconsin. When he told me some 10 to 12 years earlier that he was going to bring me to Wisconsin to be a pastor, he never specifically said where until my wife went to a conference in Indiana and God showed her that there was a need in Calvary Chapel, Manitowoc, Wisconsin. So for me, the reason I'm not moved from the course that God has set is because God has set the course. He told me what he wanted me to do. Now, I could throw my hands up in the air and go, oh, nobody loves me anymore. I could be an Eeyore and just go, oh, it's so bad. It's always bad. But you know what? Who's in control? God is. If he's called me to work, then he's responsible, right? I just need to walk by faith. And that was Paul. Hey, none of these things are going to move me. I know what God has called me to do. I need to go to Jerusalem. I know what the Holy Spirit's saying. It's going to be bad there. He's given me a warning. But I know what I'm called to do. And none of these things are going to move me from the course that God has set for me. That's the heart that we need to have, especially in the days we're living in. Especially when we see all the things going on within the Calvary Chapel movement. I can't tell you some of the things that people have said against me for taking a stand against the apostasy that's happening within Calvary Chapel. But I'll tell you what, none of these things are going to move me. You know why? Because I don't serve Calvary Chapel, I serve God. So it's simple. You see, you've got to have the right perspective. If you lose the perspective and you start... Um, Doing these things because of, you know, you're serving man, you're going to be in trouble. You serve God and you bless man by doing that. You bless the people by doing it. That's the kind of heart we need to have. Don't be moved. And Paul tells us that Galatians received him and the gospel with joy. And, you know, if he had this malaria, it affected his eyes. He wasn't too too attractive. There's probably a lot of stuff, you know, discharging from his eye, crusty. You know, like, hey, I'm not getting too close to this guy. No, they said, Paul said, you guys receive me with joy and the gospel message with joy. And their love for Paul was so deep, so strong. Paul said, I understand your love for me. You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. Wow, they really did love Paul. They cared for him. Now, they received the gospel message of grace, the message Paul spoke, and they received the messenger. And I'll tell you, when we bring forth the message, we need to do so in love. We need to do it with joy. Too often, you know, people don't share the message with that that excitement. You're a minister of God, man. You're, you're sharing the word of God. How exciting is that? And I understand 
when people hear the truth, when they're confronted with their sin, they don't necessarily like it. They don't like the person exposing them. And so they try to avoid them. They don't want to talk with them. And Paul's really saying, don't get mad at me, man. I'm just telling you the truth here. I know you don't like this message, but I'm just telling you the truth. And many don't like to deal with the truth today. You know, they, they, they tell you, man, all you talk about is all the things you're against, but we teach what we're for. I don't even understand that. If I tell you that I am for marriage between a man and a woman, what am I against? Homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism. Oh, so you already know what I'm against. Absolutely. So it doesn't matter. If you're speaking the truth, people are going to know what you're against. Why hide it? Why? Why are we afraid? I mean, I, I don't know if you looked at posts on Facebook after the elections, but, you know, the party that lost weren't very gracious. I found it so amazing. Because everything they said about, well, I guess my family, everything they said about me, being hateful and unloving and intolerant, they were doing. I will never support that man ever. I mean, you're not going to support the president? You want him to fail? You're living in America. How could you want anyone to fail? I didn't want President Obama to fail. Because I live in this country. I wanted him to succeed. How interesting. When the truth is exposed, they don't like it. And I, I, I challenged them on it. Never got a response back. Aren't you being hateful and intolerant? They don't like it. But that's the reality. People, when you come to Jesus, he wants all of you, not just part of your life. Uh, one commentator told a story about a prostitute that came to their church and was looking for help. And she was very successful financially, but she had these tremendous feelings of guilt and anxiety. She was drinking heavily, took a lot of drugs, and her life was a mess, and she realized it. And this pastor explained the gospel message to her and assured her that God was eager to forgive her sins and give her a new life if she trusted in Jesus. And she wanted to. And during the course of the conversation, she had told him of a little book in which she kept the names and phone numbers of her customers. I suggested we take that book and burn it right then as a symbol of her repentance and renunciation of her old life. But she couldn't do it. She says, I can't do it. Those names are worth thousands of dollars. I guess I don't want Jesus as much as I thought I did. And that's like many people today. They know their life is going in the wrong direction, but they love their old life more than the Lord, and they won't give it up. How tragic. Because after they die, they'll realize how empty that really was. They lost everything. And even for us as Christians, is there something in our life that God wants us to get rid of? Do we love that thing more than we love the Lord? That's something between you and the Lord, those issues. I realize we don't think of it like that, but if you love something more than the Lord, there's a problem. I knew years ago, for me, I loved, I didn't necessarily love running. I liked to run, but I loved to compete in races. And so I ran all the time. I ran two marathons. But here was a problem for me. I loved it more than I loved the Lord. And I gave it up for some 20 years, 20 plus years, because it was consuming all my time. I was so focused on that. Is running evil? Is running of the devil? No. But for me, it was an issue because it consumed my time so much, it took me away from the Lord. I was running races every weekend. And it was just too much. And I ended up getting rid of it for a while until I can control myself. And it took me some 20 plus years to do that. Well, look at verse 17 of, of Galatians 4. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. 
But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. So these guys were smooth talkers, these Judaizers. And to win them over and then exclude or literally lock you up into their legalistic ways, that's what they wanted to do. Alienate them from other Christians. We put it like this. The Judaizers had pursued the skillful course of presenting to them only part of the requirements of the Mosaic law, those parts which might be least repulsive to them as Gentiles. Having gotten them to adopt the festivals and perhaps the feast days, the Judaizers were now urging them to adopt circumcision. Yeah, you don't want to lead with that one, right? Just need to get circumcised, guys. Yeah, well, that's no thanks. And, And look at the cults today. Isn't that what they do? They don't tell you, you know, you know the Mormons that, that Joseph Smith thought that uh, the moon was made of cheese or whatever, you know? They don't tell you all the bizarre stuff. They give you the good stuff, the fluffy stuff, so you get involved with it. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. For the Jehovah Witnesses, they can never read anyone else's material, only the Jehovah Witness material. Because if they read it, what may happen? They may get saved if they're really Christian material, right? And when they come to my door, they always have their little papers that they want to hand me. I have no problem reading them. Why? Because the truth will always set me free from the lies. But they have a problem. Why? Because they have the lies. And as I start giving them the truth, they could get set free from those lies. You see the problem? And that's what these Judaizers were doing. They were giving them the fluff, the good stuff, just do this, do that. And then they ended with the circumcision part. You know, what bondage people are in. And, you know, I see this in Christianity today growing by leaps and bounds. Smooth-talking people to get people to believe unbiblical things. And they're good at it. They are amazing at it. Transcendental meditation, yoga, icons, Eastern mysticism, New Age. Just go into a Christian bookstore. It's filled with these things. Christian yoga. Really? It's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as Christian yoga. It's yoked to not the God of the Bible. That's for sure. And I don't know if people are too lazy to see if these are biblical or not, or they just don't care anymore. It makes them feel good. Let me share a couple things with you. Alice Bailey personified the New Age movement. She said that the Age of Enlightenment when everyone realizes they are one with each other and God, will come not around the Christian church, but rather through it. You know when Ellis Bailey lived? 1880 to 1949. He's been gone for a long time. But isn't that exactly what we're seeing today? Is that incredible? They have brought New Age Eastern mysticism right into the church. Here's another quote from her. The new world order must meet the immediate need and not be an attempt to satisfy some distant idealistic vision. The new world order must be appropriate to a world which has passed through a destructive crisis and to a humanity which is badly shattered by the experience. The new world order must lay the foundation for a future world order which will be possible only after a time of recovery, of reconstruction, and of rebuilding. Again, I find that amazing statement because... What I see happening, and I could be wrong, but a massive war in the Middle East, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And who comes on the scene to rebuild after that? Where the entire world is, could be almost destroyed. Who comes on the scene? The Antichrist. Well, that's what she's saying. On the heels of a cataclysmic event, we're going to change things around. She said, in the preparatory period for the new world order, there will be a steady and regulated disarmament. It will not be optional. No nation will be permitted to produce any 
to produce and organize any equipment for destructive purposes or to infringe the security of any other nation. The new world order must be appropriate to a world which has passed through a destructive crisis. There it is again. You know, crisis will cause us to do so many things that we would not normally do. For instance, after 9-11, what was enacted? The Patriot Act, which took away some of our freedom. Why do we allow it to happen? Because of terrorism. Crisis are a good thing for government. And that's exactly what she's saying. She also said we are concerned with only one subject, the ushering in of a new world order. The present world order, which is today largely disorder, can be so modified and changed that a new world and a new race of men can gradually come into being. Renunciation and the use of the sacrificial will should be the keynote for the interim period after the war prior to the inauguration of the new age. You know, these are the ideas that are coming into the church, guys. Embracing these new age ideas, these Eastern mysticism. Let me ask you. Almighty God created the heaven and earth, numbers the hairs of your head, names every single star, calls every single star by name, keeps everything going. Do you think he can give us all that we can need to grow in him? Of course he can and he has. It's called the word of God. I, I, I know someone, and this is so sad to me, because this person really, really was, had great discernment for the dangerous things that were coming into the church. But she bought into the psychology garbage that came into the church. And now she feels that she is complete. Not complete in Christ. Complete because now she has all these other tools to help her. And yet what does the Bible say? That we're complete in him. If you're not complete in him right now, what's wrong? See, there's a problem. And my heart breaks for this person. Because this person's bought into being abused by their parents and all the other, you know, the thing that the, the psychiatric uh, institutions have really moved away from. Remember all that repressed memories that years ago they had? Now we're starting to see that come into the church again. We're always years late for this stuff, but we're willing to embrace it. And it's destroying families. This one church, that is their focus, is all these people that have been abused by their parents. And I can't tell you how many families have been destroyed by this. You know what? If you're not complete in Christ, you better go back and and fall on your knees and ask God, Lord, forgive me. I, I need to repent because your word tells me I am complete. And I didn't believe in that promise. You need to. You need to. There are so many people out there Maybe they're Christians, maybe they're not, that are really smooth talkers. But if they say things that are contrary to the word of God, then they're not of God, plain and simple. I don't care if it's who it is. I don't care if it's me, Dwight, anyone. You always check things out with the word of God because you know what? God's right. And if we're saying things contrary to what God has said, we're wrong. Plain and simple. Well, look at verse 19. I don't want to get too far off on that. Let me bring you back. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Now, Paul's speaking of the Galatians becoming like Christ in character, and that's what God wants in each of us. You know, to grow in him. In in Colossians 2, Paul said, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. In Romans 13, 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You know, 
correct information is so important. We need to know the truths of God found in the word of God. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? There's application. We have to walk. We have to apply these things to our lives. A good example that I can, I th- can think of right now is on the packages of cigarettes that are you know, $200 a pack now. What does it say on there? Surgeon General's warning, cigarette smoking can be hazardous to your health. It can cause lung cancer, cardiovascular disease, all these things, right? That's the message it says on there. So here's the correct information, right? If I'm smoking, I know what the correct information is. I just haven't applied it to my life. And that's like many Christians. They know what God wants, but they're not applying it. God wants us to apply these things. You know, that's why Paul said after spending three chapters in Ephesians, he said that we're to have a walk that is worthy of the high calling by which we've been called. And then he goes on and talks about relationships, how we're to relate to each other. And the key is submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. You have to apply these things to your life, not just have the correct information, but take that information and live what God has has called you to live. Again, very, very important. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? I kind of like that. He wants to get their attention. Do you really want to hear what the law is saying to you? The law can't save you. What's the, what's the law yelling out? Guilty, 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 guilty. That's all the law could do. We're all guilty, right? And if we're going to live under the law, then we're going to be guilty before God. And Paul, again, wants to get their attention, man. Do you hear what the law is saying? Verse 22 says, For it was written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. These legalists were sons of Abraham, yes. But Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, who was a type of the flesh, and Isaac, who was the son of promise. God had promised a son to Abraham, but, you know, at the age of 85, Not having any children, Abraham thought, you know what, I'm in trouble here. It's not going to happen. My wife's 75. This is not good. So Sarah convinced Abraham to have a child with her her maidservant, Hagar, helping God out. And, you know, Abraham, dear for you, I'll do anything, right? Go figure. What a guy. And Ishmael was born when Abraham was 86. But God does not recognize the son of the flesh. In Genesis 22.2, we're told very clearly, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Abraham had two sons. God didn't recognize Ishmael because Isaac was the son of promise, a miracle of God. That's important for us to understand. Look at verse 24. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. It corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who do not travail. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, the law, the old covenant, was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and its requirement was for the Jews to keep all the commands, which, again, humanly impossible. And it made them a type of religious slaves, bound to the master from which there was no way out. That was Hagar, the bondwoman, Mount Sinai. And think about it. When the children of Israel were at Mount Sinai, all the thunderings and smoke and stuff, they were fearful. You go speak for us, Moses. We don't want to approach God. That's the law. It keeps us from God. 
freedom comes from the new covenant that's based in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's a free gift of God. It's a grace gift. And now we're told we can boldly come before the throne of grace. We can enter into the holy of holies and come before the Father and speak to him. There's no longer that fear. Why? Because our sins have been paid in full. That's the wonderful thing that God has done for us. The difference between the law, which keeps us in bondage, separates us from God, and grace, which brings us, gives us freedom and brings us right into the throne room of God that we can lay our request at his feet. Verse 28 says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free Hagar and Sarah could not live in the same house. In fact, God told Abraham to send Hagar away. And we also, as Christians, have to send away this idea of relating to God on the principle of the law. What we can do for God. What we live on is the principle of what God has done for us. Morris put it like this. He was quoting Barclay who makes the point that anyone who makes law central is in the position of a slave. All his life he is seeking to satisfy his master, the law. But when grace is central, the person has made love his dominant principle. It will be the power of love and not the constraint of the law that keeps us right. And love is always more powerful than law. Absolutely. It's an amazing thing, this gift of grace that God has given to us. It's so freeing. I wake up every morning and it's a new day with the Lord. I don't have to think, oh man, I blew it so many times this week and I'm going to have to do, you know, this and do that to get in good with God. Every day is fresh. Every day is new. God's grace and mercy never run out. And really... What Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, really flows out of what he said here in Galatians chapter 4. Remember, the chapter verse, or chapters and verses were put in at a later date. They're not inspired. But Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't go back to that. Live in the freedom that we have in Christ. Why go back to that? which is going to entangle you and just really ruin your life. There's no freedom. There's no joy in that. But there truly is joy in the Lord, knowing what he's done for us. Every day is a new day in him. And how could you not wake up thanking him for another day, getting to serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? It's an amazing journey that we are on. And I don't know about you, But for me, living in the days we're living in, people kind of freak out. Oh, my gosh, you know, I'm so worried about what's going to happen. I'm so excited to see how God is going to use us. Do you think God's like in heaven going, oh, my gosh, I don't know what to do next. It's so bad out there. Are you kidding? And if he's in control, is anything going to move you from the course that God has set for your life? I hope not. Be excited about the days you're living in. We're living in the last days, the end times. We could be the generation that closes out the church age. We may not be. We could be. But it doesn't matter. God is still using us to be salt and light in a world that is in darkness and is rotting away. May we stand for him in the grace that he's given to us and extend that grace to others that they may come to that saving faith. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your wonderful words this evening, Lord, from, as you inspired Paul to speak, to write these words down, Lord. And Lord, how encouraging, just seeing your, your tremendous love for us. And Lord, just the warnings of not you know, going back to that stuff, going back to the law for our salvation. Hear what the law says, guilty, 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 but hear what grace says, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Oh, thank you, Lord. 
Lord, if any are struggling here tonight with that, Lord, just comfort their hearts and encourage them. If there are any who don't know you, Lord, may you just reveal yourself to them. May they repent of their sins and ask you to be Lord and Savior of their life. It is the greatest gift that has ever been given. And what a wonderful gift. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.